Well, today's reading, the one that Monica just read for you, is one of the most theologically intense bits of scripture you'll find anywhere in all the sacred word. It is, it is unbelievable in the way it begins. In the beginning, John wants us to understand that he's reflecting on Genesis chapter 1, which begins with the exact same words, in the beginning, but John actually takes us to a deeper, uh, a grander, broader level of thinking. In the beginning, there was light, and the darkness could not overcome it. Right here in the opening sentences of John's beautiful gospel, his story of Jesus Christ, he wants us to understand this in terms of light and dark, good and evil. I've played in the past with an idea of preaching a series of six sermons just on chapter one of John. There's at least six themes that one could individually preach on for 20 or 20 or 30 or 40 minutes every week. And we would all have a deeper, richer understanding, including me, of what's going on with John. But today I'm struck not only by its immensity, by, by its immensity, its broadness, its grandeur, but by its simple clarity too. The direct way these words speak to our everyday lives. Fred Craddock, the great New Testament theologian, once said that a child could wade and an elephant could swim in the pages of John's gospel. And there's, there's great truth there. It speaks to the depth and the immensity of all that is, and by the same token, it speaks to you and to me. John 1.14, we've seen his glory, full of grace and truth. There, there's a sermon and a sentence there. We've seen in the glory of Jesus, in the light of his life, in the beauty of his teaching and his preaching, a reflection of who God is, of the truth and the grace that God wants us to receive. To make sure we get the point, John later writes, from his fullness we have all received, I hope you heard it as, as Monica read this, grace upon grace. If you hear nothing else on this day, if you never, never hear another sermon in the rest of your life, hear those simple words. We have all received. I looked at the word all and it means all. All of us have received grace upon grace. At the heart of this theologically intimidating text, we find this simple promise of God's graciousness, of God's love, of God's forgiveness, of God's very self being given to us. It's almost as though John is saying, I know life is hard. I know, I know ugly things happen. Awful things happen. Terrible things happen. There's a report just this morning, I saw it on my phone, I haven't read it carefully of an attack in Istanbul in a nightclub where people were celebrating New Year's. Terrible things are happening. And yet this promise is that in Jesus Christ we've seen the reality of God's presence among us. In him we've seen love made real. We've seen forgiveness spoken unconditionally. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's a fancy theological way of saying God's moving into the neighborhood and God isn't going away. God has come to us. Uh, a week ago yesterday at the 5.30 Christmas Eve service, which is for families and children, uh, after the Holy Family had left the chancel and all the angels and the, and the shepherds and the rest had, had left, I walked out here to, to give my homily, which is a very short version for the children's service of my sermon that's preached at 8 and 11 on that night. And I walked out here and the, the manger was still here and, and there was all kinds of stuff all over the chancel. There were leftover halos and glitter and shepherd's crooks and caps and all sorts of things. And I, I looked down at the floor and I asked, I meant for this to be rhetorical, I asked the congregation, by the way, it was jam-packed, we had 700 and 
14,000 children here uh, on that night. It was great fun, great fun. But I asked everyone, what do you see up here on the chancel? And what I was going to say was, heaven has been spilled out. But before I could give my very cute answer, I thought it was cute, a little boy sitting right here where Jim is said, I see God. And he said it loud enough for everybody, even all the folks up in the balcony to hear it. And everyone laughed and I said, well, there you go. We can go home now. That really is the point. And isn't that the point? Isn't that what we're trying to say to, to the world on Christmas Eve? When we gather at the manger, we see God. We see the presence of God among us and in us. And that's what Luke was trying to do. It's what John is saying in that theologically rich, captivating, beautiful kind of language. In him was the light. This was the energizing principle beneath the founding of the early church. There were folks who began to gather in Jesus' name and they said, did our hearts burn when we were with him? When we consider his teaching and his preaching and we revisit those words, it's as though he's here among us. And they began to have an experience of Jesus, not just of Jesus, but of the risen Christ and the breaking of bread and the sharing of wine in the forgiveness of each other. They felt as though Jesus' very presence, God's very presence was with them. And think of the stories that we know and the way that people in Jesus' own time experienced this. In John chapter 8, just a few chapters from the one we read this morning, there's a story that's familiar, you probably have heard it before, of the woman who's been caught in adultery. She's brought before Jesus by an angry group of men. They want to punish her, and they also want to trick Jesus. And by the way, isn't it sad to note, I mean, women have come a long, long way, especially in the last 100 years, but isn't it sad to note that there are still groups of angry men who use women and abuse them, especially those in powerful places? Well, back to the story. They, brought, they bring her before Jesus. They throw her on the ground and they say, uh, it says in the, in the law, it says according to Moses that this woman who we caught in the very act of adultery should be stoned. What do you say? By the way, where's the man who was caught? He's missing from the scene, isn't he? He's not there. Some have said, and I kind of like this idea, that maybe what he's doing is he's hiding in the crowd of angry men, and he too has a stone in his hand, and he too wants to project both his emotional and physical anger upon this poor woman. But Jesus, as you recall, he looks up at the crowd, and what does he say? Let the one without sin throw the first stone. And beginning with the oldest to the youngest, they let go of their weapons, and they walk away. And the church looks at a story like that and they say, oh yes, no wonder we experience God's spirit, God's presence. It's in that word of forgiveness in the way that God welcomes anyone and everyone and sends them on to live a new life. They experience something, the presence of something, of someone sacred and holy when they're reflected on these stories. They may not have been able to write deep theological reflections like, like this, this author of John in fact, most of the followers of Jesus probably were illiterate, did not know how to read or to write. And yet they knew in their heart and souls, they knew somehow deep within that in this one's presence, we experience the presence of God. In him was life and light and the darkness, even the darkness of abuse of power could not overcome him. This word from John then is really a, it's an invitation to see God revealed in the life of Jesus, 
oftentimes in a Bible study when we're talking about this text, people will say to me, how does that work exactly? And I, I like to quote uh, Irenaeus, St. Irenaeus, who once said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. In Jesus we see a human being fully alive. And that aliveness, that, that richness helps us come to find him and know him as the Son of God. The story of Jesus, then, is a story of God coming to us. It's a lovely picture. It's, it's a beautiful image. But I'm wondering, I, I've got another rhetorical question, and feel free to shut out the answer if you think you know. If you're brave enough. Do you want God to come to you? Are you ready for God to come into your life? Are you ready for the comfort and the challenge that God might bring? We've experienced the glory of God and the glory of a silent and holy night just a week and a day ago. It's a beautiful image to see that, that, that child, that vulnerable, helpless little babe brought into the world under the light of a beautiful star. But are you wanting the grown-up Jesus to come to you, to your life? The same Jesus who challenged those angry men to find forgiveness. The one who looks at your life and mine and asks you to wonder out loud, where do I need forgiveness? Where have I stumbled along the way? Do we want Jesus to do the same? Pastor Nadia Bowles Weber is a a Lutheran preacher and and a fine one. She was asked once while on a speaking tour by a very earnest young seminarian, Pastor Nadia, what what do you do to get close to God? What are your spiritual practices? What, What kinds of things do you do every day? And she said, get close to God? Are you kidding? Every time I get close to God, God expects me to love someone I hate, to give my money away to people who need it more than me, and to forgive people I really don't want to forgive. I don't want to be too close to God, frankly. And she was kind of kidding, and she was kind of telling the truth. Because isn't that what happens with God? When God does come into our lives, there's not only a sense of comfort, there's a challenge in your life and in mine. Where are you falling apart? Where are things in your life not quite so together? Those are the places where God wants to shine the light, as Monica did for us this morning, not in a spirit of judgment, but in an invitation to a new life. John 1 is a story of God coming after us. It's a story told over and over again, by the way, in the Bible, from the Genesis all the way to, to the end. Early in Genesis, Genesis 12, I think it is, God comes to Abraham. Do you know who Abraham was? Abraham was an extremely wealthy man. He had this huge ranch, huge farm. He had all kinds of things. He's living in luxury in his old age. Things could not be better. And God comes and says, leave it all behind. I'm sending you down to Palestine. And you and your descendants will create a new nation. And your nation will be, listen to this word, will be a light to the world. Do you see the connection with John chapter 1? He calls him out of his comfort, sets a challenge before him to become a light to the world. God does the same thing with Moses. Moses has escaped Egypt. He's gotten off into the land of Midian. He's married a beautiful woman. He has a wonderful wife, a wonderful family. Everything's going great. He's caring for his father-in-law's flocks. And in his comfort... God comes to him and says, Moses, I've heard my people cry. You now go with me in your presence to the most powerful man in the world and you tell him, let my people go. It's out of comfort that they're called 
Throughout the Bible, the story is repeated again and again and again. God comes after us. Where in your life is God coming for you? What part of your very soul does God want to speak to this morning? What in your heart needs detention now more than ever? Where is your love needed, your forgiveness desired, your graciousness called to spring forth? Or maybe you're like someone who I spoke to this week who feels as though their entire life has just been turned upside down and they have no idea what they're going to do today, let alone tomorrow and the rest of the year. But maybe, maybe for him and maybe for you if you're like that, maybe that's a sign that the very God of all it is is ready to turn your life around this year. There's something so new you can't even imagine what it might be. Where in your life is God coming? I preached a sermon back in November on November 13th. It was titled, "'Twas Grace That Taught My Heart to Fear." You might recognize that line from Amazing Grace one of my favorite hymns of all, of all time. It dealt with, of course, the idea of grace and forgiveness. Many people think that grace is sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card, that it just lets you do whatever you want. That might be true at some point, but mostly what grace does is ask you where do you need to receive grace and where do you need to give that same grace away. In that sermon, I, I, I said, what might happen this week if every one of us made a commitment to be kind to someone with whom we disagree? This sermon was preached right after the election. I thought that was a good idea. What might happen this week if every one of us made a commitment to be kind to someone with whom we disagree? That's really what a a sermon ought to do, is provide a a, a bit of comfort and, and a word of challenge to send us forth with the knowledge that God is with us and God loves us, but God also is calling us to put those very gifts of love and grace to practice in our own lives. Well, the next day I was sitting and having a conversation with my very best friend in the whole world, and we were talking about some things. I brought up somebody in our life who had hurt me greatly. And I talked about how angry I still was. And I said, I hope I never see that one again. Their betrayal was so deep and so great. She listened, as she does all the time. She has for 37 years. Nodded her head. And I was getting angrier and angrier. And then she said, What might happen this week if you were kind to someone with whom you disagree? I said, well, now that was just a sermon. Come on. (laughs) And I figured out I should be quiet at that point. God comes to us, and often it is as much with a word of challenge as it is a word of comfort. Tony Robinson is a United Church of Christ pastor. He says... We do often seem to think of the Christian faith as our human search for God, our feeble attempt to get close to God. The Bible tells us a different story, the story of the God who keeps showing up, intruding, refusing to leave us alone, searching for us, a God who won't take no for an answer. Did you hear what he said? The God who keeps showing up, intruding, refusing to leave us alone, searching for us, a God who refuses to take no as an answer. In Luke 2, the angel proclaims to the shepherds, I'm bringing you good news of great joy. John writes in the beginning of his gospel, the word became flesh and lived among us. The message of Christmas, the word of the Bible from the very beginning to the very end is the good and yet terrifying news that God has come to us. That God has moved into the neighborhood. 
that God is full of glory. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful promise. But there's also a threat to be ready, to be prepared to have your life turned upside down. I don't care if you're 8 or 88. When God comes in, there's change that's about to happen. For everything you've known and desired to be called into question, because at the end of everything, honestly, at the end of everything, the only thing God wants is you. There's no better time, really, than the first day of the new year than to look at your life and to wonder what, I, what it is. Maybe even wonder out loud with someone you love. What is it that matters the most? You might as well do it now because God has moved in and God's coming to your house. Amen.